Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode, and we are joined by Alex Morris. Uh, and we talk Netflix, which has been slightly controversial at the time of this recording because they had just reported earnings. Um, but it will, you'll be guys, you guys will, or you all will be listening to this about two weeks delayed. So, um, but anyway, it, we go over the business. I think it's pretty informative. Uh, probably one of my favorite deep dives we've done so far, just because there's so many different ways to look at the business. Um, yep. And it's timely because streaming is at, it seems like streaming companies are at a pivotal moment. We might look back at it on it and say, it's not a pivotal moment, but that's stuff we get into during the interview. So for anyone that's interested in Netflix, interested in streaming, kind of wants to get some insight and someone who spent hours and hours of researching on this, Alex um, was perfect for that. Yeah. And before we get to the interview, uh, we want to talk about our friends, our sponsor, Stream by Mosaic. They are an expert interview transcript library. Uh, We've used them before uh, and we use them. We're not huge expert interview people, but we do on occasion use them whenever it's a new portfolio company or something like that, just to take a look and see what people on the inside or experts, I guess, are saying about a business. This is perfect if you're a professional investor. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, even, exactly. I mean, even individuals to some extent, if you want to kind of, and if you're thinking maybe it's too pricey or maybe I'm not getting enough value potentially, they have a two week uh, free trial. So, and you can use our code. I think it's CCM. Yeah. CCM, uh, go to streamrg.com and there's 8,500 plus call transcripts. They have a bunch of different industries. I think pretty much, unless it's some obscure micro cap and maybe they do have one, they've probably got an expert transcript uh, or an expert interview on that company, whatever one you're looking for. So go ahead, check them out. As I said, streamrg.com, S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Use that code. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Today we are joined by Alex Morris. I don't, you know, I've lost count, so I'm just going to call you a recurring guest. Uh, and today we're talking Netflix. You had a write up on them come out uh, this week, and we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. And they just had earnings. So let's start there. What were your thoughts on the earnings? I guess most people probably know about Netflix, but uh, let's just stick right into the earnings. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I was thinking in my head how many times it was as well. And uh, I also do not know. So we'll just say recurring. Um, you know, at a high level, I think the, the summary on the quarter is that it was a pretty difficult one. Um, and, you know, the place to probably start is the subscriber data, which we really need to take a step back and, and look at what's happened since COVID began. So if you go back to Q419, the company had 167 million paid subs. And the pace of growth leading up to that period was right around 55 million subs on a trailing two-year basis. And that had held for the prior three or four quarters. And that number had kind of grown over time. So that gave you a good idea of where they were, you know, what they were kind of on pace for. So if you look at this quarter, Q421, they're at 222 million paid subs, which works out to exactly 55 million. 
So it's right on trend with where they, they kind of exited 19. Um, you know, the problem is <laughs> those eight quarters that, uh, that occurred in between there were, there's a lot of variability in terms of what we got in the numbers. Uh, in first half of 20, they added 26 million subs, which was by far, you know, the best six month period they've had in their history. They added 16 million or 15.8 million. I think it was in Q1 of 20 alone, which by far their best quarter in their history. So, you know, they had really strong growth in the early days of the pandemic, obviously people were locked inside their houses, work from home, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a really nice tailwind for them. But then as you go forward from there, the experience gets a lot choppier. You know, they finished up 2020 pretty strongly, but then early 2021 was weak. The stock came under a lot of pressure at that point. Mid 2021 was strong again. They had Squid Game. They had other, other you know, programming that really hit it out of the park. So the stock had a very nice performance. Now we're here in Q4, and you know, the the number was pretty underwhelming. Um, and also, as we look ahead to 22, the Q1 guy was really weak. In addition, you know, the EBIT margin target, which if people don't know, they've, they've basically said, hey, we think we can add roughly 300 bips a year to margins over time. Any one year could be more or less than that, but that's kind of what we're on pace for. They've overshot that a little bit in the last, I believe, three years, but now 21, they're going to, or 22, sorry, they're going to have a little bit more pressure. So it's going to basically fall back in the line. But so between sub subscriber, you know, targets and the margin target people are certainly a little bit more negative on on Netflix's current trajectory. Okay, and as someone that follows them, are you looking for them to return to that 55 million uh, average trend because I know it's supposed to dip down to what the projection would be about 42 million for the trailing 24 month I believe the number is. Are you looking for them to return to that over time? Yes, this is the hard thing, right? So Q1 Q1 of 20 is it's what's going to drop out. Right. And, you know, when they reported Q121, it was pretty weak. Well, yeah, you had a very tough compare from Q120. Now with Q122 looking like it's going to be weak, well, you know, you start to, you have to start asking the question, how much of this is, how long will this COVID hangover basically last? And really, what was COVID? Was it a, was it a pool forward where our growth rate is, is just now taking a step up that we're going to build off of from there? Or is it a temporary one-time influx of people, and then now you're hitting a bit of a, a lull on the backside of that? It's certainly looking more like the second one at this point. So, but I think over a longer period of time, yeah, you're still looking for something like you know, let's put that 55 and, and half. You know, that's 27 and a half. I think if you're bullish on this company, you really think that over the course of the next decade or so, let's put it in you know round numbers that they can add another 200 or 250 million over a decade so that's 20 to 25 a year um so you know the pace that we're at right now doesn't get you there um i personally would come to the view that this is just it's not so neat and tidy that the hangover from covid is a one year thing that you're you're dealing with the realities of operating a business so I think you see them get back above the numbers we're at today and, and Q2, the, the trailing 24 number will go even lower as they roll off the 10 million from Q120. But I think we start working our way back towards kind of where they were at before the pandemic started. Okay. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about, you know, how they grow subscribers. That's the big question for them. But let's step back first. Everyone knows that Netflix is a subscription business, but I think a lot of people don't really know what's under the hood there. So can you give an overview of the unit economics and business model to give a clear view of how Netflix is making money? 
Sure. So the unit economics, let's start with the PL because that's uh that's one people will well, they'll certainly have an argument with it, but at least we can talk about the numbers. We can talk about the income statement versus the cash flow. If you look at the PL on a an average subscriber basis over the past five years, the cost of goods sold line, the majority of which is their content spend, has been right around $80 per sub globally. And then below that line, as you look at operating expenses, so thinking things like you know, tech and development expense, marketing, et cetera, those line items collectively have been right around $30 per average sub over the past five years. So between those two line items, you've been right around 110 globally, and that's an annualized number, average subscriber. Now, the important thing that happened in that same period is from 16 to 21, revenues per average sub globally went from about $9.20 a month to about $11.60 a month. For an annualized basis, that's 110 to 140. So nutshell, EBIT per sub five years ago was basically zero. And then last year, it was basically 30 bucks and right around a 20% margin. And again, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about income statement versus cash flow, but that 2000 BIP improvement in, in the EBIT margin profile, you see a very similar trend in, ter- in terms of the F- FCF margin profile. Um, and so that's really how I think about the long-term business model personally. It's this, co- it's this combination of unrivaled scale. And then when it's paired with you know, effective content investments, it's the idea of driving best-in-class engagement, churn, ARPUs, et cetera. Um, and, and as you start thinking about those numbers from a current base of you know, 220 to 300, 400, 500, and then also on the ARPU side of the equation as you're starting at you know, that 1160 I talked about, as you think about what that looks like at $13, $14, $15, you start to get a clear idea of how this company over time can have you know, content budgets of 20, 25, $30 billion a year. Um, you know, one other thing I'd add I think it's really important to try to look at this this company regionally to get a feel for how these different businesses are kind of tracking. You know, you look at a region like the U.S. Obviously, the product and and the subscriber base is much more established than it is in a lot of other markets outside the world. So when I look at those numbers personally, I I get to and you have to use some estimates based on what they've reported over time. But I personally see the U.S. Slash you can business with with something like thirty like mid thirties EBIT margins currently, um, and obviously international is much lower than that given where they're at currently in their life cycle. So I think it's really important to to recognize that it's kind of a mistake to view Netflix as a single business. You kind of need to think about where these different regions are at in terms of their life cycle. Can you talk about? And this was a question we got on Twitter, and I think it's sort of a, I guess a hotly debated. Topic it's or the, part the of biggest one, biggest question probably, <clears throat> which is the content amortization portion. Can you kind of ex, uh, explain how they amortize their content, and then sort of what that big discrepancy is between cash flow and uh, gap earnings? Sure. So, what Netflix is doing at a high level, let's just take a step back so people really understand this. They're putting money in. Obviously, they're paying cash up front to. Um, you know, people who are working on a set, whatever it may be, to get a show produced. So that con- cash content spend is happening today, and then over, you know, maybe that maybe that show goes live in five and six months. Let's say, at that point, they start amortizing the cost of that spend through their PL. So how they currently do it, and they lay this all out in a deck on their investor relations page. They basically tell you that the vast majority of a content asset, I mean, they say ninety percent plus is amortized over the first four years of the title being on the platform. 
Now, I'm sure part of the problem people have is, well, what is the actual life of, you know, is the life of a title actually four years? How fast or slow should that amortization cycle be? Um, they tell you in that same deck, and I guess people have to decide whether or not they, they trust management or, you know, auditors, whatever it may be. They tell you that they look at historic viewing patterns and current viewing patterns, and they they review this on a quarterly basis in order to ensure that the amortization is aligned with the viewership. So, you know, in terms of how they're accounting for this stuff, I, I think that's basically all you have. In terms of the discrepancy, a lot of this is the timing of a business that's currently in a major growth phase. And, you know, there's going to be a lag between the, the PL costs and the cash costs as you do so. You know, for example, I think people forget sometimes. I know because a lot of us are US investors who are looking at this. This company had 10 million international subscribers seven or eight years ago. They have 150 million today. This, this business is still very much in a growth phase. And I think it will continue to be in a growth phase for a long time with, with the cash content spend likely you know, exceeding the, the amortized costs that's throwing through, flowing through the PL. Um, so I think people just have to to realize that this is part of what it takes to get to scale. And that's how it'll show up in those, you know, those different uh, financial statements. The other thing I'd probably add is as legacy competitors look to compete with Netflix, they are going to face a lot of the same issues in terms of how they think about spending a lot of money up front in advance of you know, economics that they they hope to achieve on the back end. So I realize it's a it can be a pretty complex issue for people, but I I think when you you know, as I mentioned in the previous answer, when you think about this idea of the income statement having 2,000 bips of margin expansion, and you think about the FCS statement having a similar change in its trajectory over time, I think people should maybe step back and just think about what's truly going on here in terms of the economics of the business and, and not get too hung up on how short-term accounting is. And when I say short-term, I mean years. So I do realize it's an issue, but thinking about how the accounting issues impact, you know, apparent profitability. Do you think... Now, this might be something that you can't get an exact number on. Do you think free cash flow and say EBITDA earnings are going to merge over time as they mature? Converge. Yeah. Converge. Yeah, once, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Over time, as as the spending slows down to to a pace that's more of a run rate, you'll see those those two figures close. And I think again, this is partly why it's important to look at this business regionally. If you try to break out what the UCAN content spend looks like over the past five years. Well, you'll notice, and it, and it kind of surprised me actually, the pace of growth has not been that significant in the grand scheme of things. Um, it's really international where a ton of the spend is being driven, and if you believe in their strategy and vision, rightly so. Um, but that's you know, if you had a clean UCAN cash flow statement, you would you would see that the discrepancy between these two figures is not as large as it is for the for the business as a whole. Right. And with that amortization stuff, I want to say whenever someone says like, oh, they're amortizing over four years, they're always cherry picking either direction. So I think in general, you know, four years might be a good number. It could be three, it could be five, but like, I don't think it's a big deal. But let's move on to the next question. That's pricing power. Another big debate, I guess a lot of investors have with Netflix. What ways do you think they can increase their pricing power? And I'm going to throw it off by maybe analyzing two really different parts of this business. Can you talk about that in the United States, which may be more in the pricing power arena? Uh, they they just they just raised prices again, I believe. And then maybe talk about we just learned that they lower prices in India. Can you talk about maybe those two different strategies, international or emerging market stuff versus the UCAN pricing power? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, at a very high level, and obviously this is not an original answer, but it's to have a large quantity of programming that people, you know, truly desire. And let's start with with the first part, as you kind of laid out, because I think it's an important thing. As you think about markets like UCAN, where they have a clear leadership position, they clearly have penetrated a large percentage of the market. They account for a significant percentage of all viewership through, you know, kind of a video on demand uh, way of viewing the offering. I think Netflix really benefits from that dominant position, not only because it gives them scale and it gives them pricing power, but you know you can go listen to people like comedians or actors and directors, or and now we're seeing with you know kind of like the PGA Tour is doing. These people seek out Netflix because of the reach that it gives them. So obviously, it's important that Netflix still pays something close to top dollar, if not top dollar, to secure a lot of this content. But these people also recognize that their ability to monetize is not contained to just, you know, getting a check from Netflix or Paramount Plus or whatever it may be. You know, someone like Formula One very clearly has seen that their global fan base and interest in the sport has been very materially affected by the fact that that their their show was on uh, Drive to Survive was on Netflix as opposed to being on, you know, name any competitive offering, basically. So I think that that's a huge part of that having the programming that people truly want equation. Um, other things are as simple as having simple access to the product, you know, having these TV remotes that everybody has with a Netflix button on and having smart TVs that have access to the product. Uh, I think they very intelligently have pushed people into these kind of family plans with concurrent streams where they obviously know, and I, I know this from personal experience, I don't want to text, <laughs> I don't want to text my my parents and my sister and my cousin and tell them, hey, I cut our, I cut off our Netflix because I just want to turn off for a month and I'll turn it back on. Personally, I'm just going to keep paying versus doing that. So I think they rightly recognized early on that things like password sharing and family plans, uh, when dealt with in an intelligent way, could actually be a, a tailwind for their business. So these are some of the things that in my mind, really give them pricing power. And of course, this isn't theoretical. We've seen them very significantly drive pricing in a market like you can. As you look to the rest of the world, as you, as you said with India, you know, you need to take it on a on a country by country basis. You need to, you know, as I just mentioned for you can, having scale is very important. Having programming that people care about is very, very important. And in a market like India, they are starting from you know a weaker position as opposed to being the trailblazer in that market, they're from the data I've seen at least they're probably in pretty solidly behind a, a company like Disney or or Amazon. So they need to think about how can we start to get scale, how can we start to get content that people really must have, and uh, that'll be a tough fight. But Netflix has done this before in countries all around the world. There's a great Bloomberg Bloomberg article about what they had to do in order to to kind of start building their presence in a place like Brazil. And I think what you see is Netflix, you know, it's funny to think about a company having a first mover advantage and, and that giving them a scale advantage. But I think it's also important to recognize that a first mover advantage also comes with a ton of learnings that a company like Netflix can now apply as they go to all, the, all these other countries around the world. So um, yeah, just like the income statement question, I, I think it really is kind of a country by country basis. And some of these places will take a long time before they really drive pricing power. What does it take for Netflix to enter a different market? I mean, cause they're not like, it's not like they're going there and setting up regional like sales offices. Right. So it's, do they have to get, 
I mean, what are the like barriers to going into a new country? So I think part of it is, and the, the Brazil article talks about things, for example, and this is, this is a few years ago, but things as simple as how do you get paid? In, in some countries, not everybody has a credit card. So they, they needed to address very, uh, fairly simple things like that. Um, in India, another example is, my understanding is that companies like Disney and, and Amazon, part of their success has been because they very effectively have tied themselves to, to some of the telco offerings. So it was a way to basically get them distribution without you know, them going there and, and throwing up billboards or, or other forms of marketing. Um, so it's stuff like that and stuff Netflix has done before, but you know, you need to, you need to really put the pieces in place for those things to work as opposed to just, you know, Hey, Netflix.in is now, is now live. You know, you need, you need to get boots on the ground and make those and make those, uh, you know, get that going in that business. I also think, you know, as we see them doing in places like South Korea, it's also figuring out the local content and thinking about how are we going to make this a service that in this individual country, people are really going to want to watch the programming as opposed to this idea of it being, you know, just some American company shipping us American content, which is how it can be perceived, obviously. And it's still very early in the local content story. But I think they need to have a truly local offering in every major market that they go to. Right. And now let's get the last overview question. Then we'll get to the fun ones in the second half. Churn at Netflix, and I believe correct me if I'm wrong, is the lowest out of all the streaming services, um, which means it's the best for, from a business standpoint. But we always see people talking about competitions coming online. Anecdotally, they're like, you see someone that's saying, oh, I'm turning off Netflix. I like HBO Max now. Numbers haven't proven it out yet, but if churn rises, that's, you know, they're in trouble. What do you think the best ways are them there for them to keep churn either stable or go down, um, say, over the next decade? Yeah, I think a lot of it ties into, you know, obviously the ability to drive prices is, is obviously tied to hip with, with right. your ability to keep people on the service. So, um, you know, as you kind of alluded to, it's, it's hard to get clean data, but everything I've ever seen suggests that that Netflix remains best in class in, in, in that regard. And, you know, I think the answer is a combination of programming that people really want, both in terms of the library, but also a ton of you know, a ton of new content. And, and I think management has been fairly explicit about this, that, you know, it's stuff like Red Notice, it's stuff like Squid Game, it's stuff like uh, Don't Look Up, you know, these new movies or new shows that can create a lot of buzz that that can convince that marginal customer to sign up for the first time or to convince people to stick around. And, you know, as I think about this, this business and what it becomes, you need to fight for that spot as being the thing that people turn on when they sit down on their couch at night. And if you're not securing that place, unless you're running a niche strategy where you're going to have a relatively high priced offering for a relatively small audience, you need to be fighting for that, for that slot in people's minds. And, you know, for a number of reasons, Netflix clearly has that position today for a, for a large number of people around the world. In terms of solidifying that position, I think they need to take what they've done so far and and supercharge it. And you know, I think they've talked about this idea of, hey, a, a movie like Don't Look Up, which is a theater level quality movie, we're going to have dozens of those a year. And you know, to the extent that they can deliver on that vision, and I, I think the the numbers I discussed earlier about subs and ARPU support that type of investment, they can deliver on that vision. I think they have a very bright future ahead. 
I have one more question before we get to the second half. Do you personally like their original content? Let me think. Oh, I like Don't Look Up was a, was a, a good movie. I liked it. You liked um, it? I liked it. Yeah. I thought I it was there's good. something thought... a little off with their films, though. It's like one thing's missing compared to like Warner Brothers. You know what I mean? They got to be yeah, just yeah, a yeah, little yeah. different, you know? I hear you. I thought it was, I mean, was it my favorite movie ever? No, but I liked it. Um, yeah. Drive to Survive, I think, is a good show, but I'm not a big, I'm not a big Formula One guy. So I'll be excited to see what they do in terms of uh, PGA and, yeah. and I'm excited know, tennis, for that one. Yeah. Tennis when they get that out there. I think those will both be really good. Um, you know, I don't, none of there's, none of there's come to mind right now. I'm not a big, I'm not a huge TV guy. I usually turn it on when I'm trying to go to bed and then I fall asleep like before the opening credits are even done. So <laughs> do you, do you subscribe to any other services? Yeah. I subscribe to Netflix, Disney plus HBO max and Paramount. Which of those, if you had to, if you had to kill, you could only keep one. I could only keep one. Yeah. I mean, def- definitely Netflix among those four. The, you know, the problem is, at least the problem from my perspective, I shouldn't say that definitely Netflix. Disney would definitely be in the running only because I'm a massive sports fan and I use, I use ESPN Plus a ton. Right. Um, and Paramount Plus, I, for the same reason, I'm a big soccer fan, so I have it for soccer, but, there's, but their offering's not as deep. So there's times during the calendar where for me, I can just turn it off because I know I'm not going to use it. And this is really, this really gets to the problem. I think that a lot of these guys are going to have to figure out, which is, I know there's something of a narrative going around that streaming is a really tough business and it, it may very well be as in a lot of things. I think this ultimately comes down to your relative competitive advantages and where you can really shine where others do not. And this is where I, Netflix truly separates himself for me in terms of that mind share I talked about a moment ago but also having uh, a quantity and obviously the quality has to continue to improve, but a quantity of content that gives you reason to keep coming back to the homepage. And then obviously other stuff on top of that, more of the intangibles in terms of recommendations and, you know, the like a lot of, a lot of which parallel Spotify, in my opinion, which you guys also know very well. Yeah. I think that's a good indicator that uh, Netflix is a pretty good business when you said you don't watch it that much. And then, you wouldn't even think about not subscribing. You know, yep. that's a pretty good indicator, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have me also hooked because of, as I said, I have a family plan. So I'm paying for other people who do watch it. Right. I've never thought about that one. It was like people would think at first, your first principle of thinking on that would have been, that's a terrible idea. You're just going to let everyone share passwords. What about you're never going to get that many subscribers? But I think it's really turned into a long term advantage. That's, that's very interesting. No, they've played that card brilliantly over time. And I, I, I can't say this for certain because my memory might be uh, not as good as I think it is, but I think they've really expanded in terms of uh, what that offering entailed to really make it clear that, hey, this is, they, they got much stricter in terms of the concurrent streams as well. Um, so they've really driven people into these plans. And obviously, you see what that means in terms of pricing. And then I would bet a large amount of money what it means in terms of churn as well. All right. All right. Let's hit a quick break. And then we got more questions on the second half. Pluralsight, a tech workforce development company, provides the solutions high-performing engineering teams need to tackle today's biggest challenges. Whether it's building the skills individuals and teams need to tackle mission-critical projects, driving cloud transformation, or helping software teams to ship reliable, scalable, and secure code. Harness the collective power of hindsight, foresight, and insight with Pluralsight at pluralsight.com vision. 
Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back in. Um, we, we got a whole bunch of questions from Twitter. Uh, so I'm going to try to use some of those. So and we, we briefly alluded to this in the first half, but what are your thoughts on the streaming space as a whole? Um, and then how, imp- how much do you think about competition when thinking about sort of the Netflix investment thesis? Yeah, how I think about streaming as a whole and, and, you know, kind of video streaming or particularly entertainment programming, in my mind, it's just so obvious that this is where the world is going. It's a much better product than, than what existed previously. And, you know, you can see the data that, that Netflix or, or third parties report that just clearly suggests that the runway here is so long. Um, you know, we just went out on the, on the first half talking about Spotify, but for me, it's a very similar kind of trajectory where you hear someone like X say, you know, such a huge percentage of advertising in the category is still over terrestrial radio. I, I just view a lot of these developments as things that are inevitable and it may take 10, 20, 30 years for some of these things to happen, but they will happen. So that's kind of how I think about Netflix as well. Um, you know, as it relates to the competition, I think it's undoubtedly coming. It's undoubtedly coming. Um, you know, I own a company, I own Disney and I, I think they're, they're very much on the right path. And I, think they will be one of the long-term winners alongside Netflix. Um, when it comes to some of the other players, I think there's a lot of work left to be done. And particularly as it relates to this transition away from linear TV in the US, uh, a number of them will be fighting a lot of short-term pressure um, on their income statement and on their cash flow statement um, in order to make that happen. You know, they'll also be fighting the incentives of the people working inside these organizations. I think a good example I saw it this week was an article that was talking about Viacom CBS. And it said, um, you know, the company has three programming executives that report to the streaming CEO. And all three of them are looking to defend their turf. So for example, you know, one of the execs is responsible for CBS, the broadcast network. And so, you know, you can start to see how his incentives, when you're talking about putting something on CBS, were to be seen by you know, or at least it's accessible to tens of millions of households around the country. And it's important to Nielsen ratings and advertising revenues, et cetera, et cetera, versus that content being put on Paramount Plus. You know, it might be in terms of what he cares about at that moment and what makes sense to him. I think that is a, a, a problem that a lot of these organizations are going to have to navigate. So they not only have to get to a place where people know about their products and care about their products and don't churn off of their products, but they also need to get their own organization to, to think similarly and have an all-in mindset on streaming. And this is also a scenario where a period like this quarter where people think more negative, negatively about Netflix specifically, but maybe even streaming broadly, it's the kind of thing where I, I think in some ways, those internal issues that I'm talking about become even more pronounced because maybe an organization that hasn't yet gone all in on something like streaming gets a little bit more tentative about what that may mean for their business. So um, I just think the clarity that Netflix has and the clarity that Disney is is starting to have and they're moving in the right direction. It just, it, it, for me, it's, 
pretty evident that both of those companies are going to end up doing pretty well in the space. What uh, Any quick thoughts on HBO Max Discovery? That seems like they'll be the largest one, at least in UCAN. I don't know anything about international. Yeah, you know, if they get the deal done and and they'll they have they certainly have a number of positives to to the position that they'll have. I think in terms of their position internationally, it's much less clear to me that they they're on very strong footing. David Zaslav would tell you differently, but if you look at the subscriber numbers, they're a relatively immaterial player. They have something like 15 or 20 million paid subs, I think was the latest, the latest number they gave. And and they've been at this under different products that were not called Discovery Plus for, for a number of years now. So I think they have a long way of going to prove that the content that they have is enough for people to truly care about subscribing to another D2C service. And then even outside of that, you know, Warner Media has a lot of deals where they've already licensed their content in international markets. So they have to navigate all these issues. And even as they navigate them, they have to deal with the PL and cash flow pressures. So I think they could become a real player, but it's going to take a lot of work. Um, and so in your write-up, you mentioned that because uh, you talked about the short-term sort of headwinds that we're seeing um, and whether that's a long sort of a, a COVID hangover or whatever it is, um, those could potentially be a long-term benefit. Do you want to explain why you think that is? Yeah, I think it's basically this idea of, of these organizations that are going in different directions or at least taking away from one thing to make another thing stand up. I mean, taking away from their linear TV offering to make their D2C streaming service stand up. This type of period may make them act a little bit more tentatively or conservatively, and they may not go as aggressively after the opportunity in the short term. And let's say, for example, you're you're paramount and you're seeing a similar impact that Netflix is in terms of your, your gross ads in the short term. Maybe that, maybe that leads you to be a little bit more conservative in terms of how you think about what this market is going to look like long-term. Um, I think that assessment will be proven to be wrong. I think this market is the trajectory and the long-term opportunity is unchanged from what it was a year ago. But I think the, there's a lot of companies that have a lot of uh, people internally kind of pulling them different directions in terms of what matters most to them in the short term. Okay, let's go to a fun question. This was from Twitter too, but I think we're going to ask it either way. Netflix has made, and these it's immaterial right now, but it's talked about because it's a big transition out of just video stuff. What are your thoughts on their video game investments? And what do you think is their best way to enter the video game market? Because it's a lot different than video. Um. Honestly, I don't know at this point. <laughs> um, I think it, you know, I think it clearly makes sense for them to do this as a small bet, particularly if the particularly if the objective is kind of to ensure that Netflix's share of time on mobile devices um, is is strengthened a little bit. I think that's partly the lens through which they're viewing this. I'm not sure if they've said that explicitly, but that's how I kind of think about it. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting test in that regard. You know, for me, it's a lot like how I think about Spotify and live audio. I'm not really sure if it's going to work, but I, I think it's a good idea either way to, to, to at least give this a test. And I would say as someone who's gone on Netflix and downloaded the game and, and played it a little bit, I'm not a big mobile gamer, but it does have a certain feel to it that's a bit different. And the fact that there's no advertising is a, a pretty compelling part of what the offering is. So Obviously, still very, very early, but I think gaming could potentially become an important part of their future. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we started this call, but 
I think if you look at what Microsoft's doing with Activision and trying to buy that company and, and really thinking about what Game Pass means to them and, and what video games, movies, and potentially audio means in terms of the consumer subscription services down the road, I do wonder if maybe these different avenues are converging in a way. Um, and if, if that is where this world is going, then it's, it's very smart for Netflix to try to find a path forward. But I don't think we're going to see a, a big deal of any kind in the short term. Yeah, it's interesting. What do, you, what do you guys think? I'm I'm curious what you guys think because you probably might have your finger on the pulse here a little more than I do. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an uphill road to climb if they want to make a big investment right away. I think yeah, you're right on the inching their way in with these mobile games, and mobile is definitely the only way they can really succeed right now because if they try to go with any comp, they're there's a they're stuck between a rock and a hard place if they go for anything that can't be on on a phone because you need hardware to do the console level stuff. And it requires like thousands, not thousands, but like over a thousand developers to create anything that a gamer that's a console level would want. I also think there's an uphill battle because the business models in gaming are a lot different than Netflix's subscription. I think they can make it work with mobile, but Apple Arcade hasn't really succeeded that much. And effort. Uh, with a lot kind of, of effort. sucky effort, but yeah, true. Maybe Netflix will have a better effort on it, but I struggle to see how it can be material unless they really crack cloud um, gaming, which maybe that's in their skunk works. We have no idea, but I, I wonder how much they would have to spend to really make a material. And if they do, can it be all with mobile games? And then the other thing that concerns me, which I don't think is a giant deal is that mobile gaming is pretty unsupply constrained. So maybe Netflix can have the differentiation where, you know, it's free with no ads. Well, it's not free. It's an add on to the subscription, but there's no ads. But I struggle to see the value add of getting where basically you can play tens of thousands of mobile games around the world for free with some advertisements. How many people are going to convince, get convinced to go onto Netflix unless it's a pretty like expansive game um, with the IP like Stranger Things, I guess would be a number one or the, well, The Witcher was already a game, but like, uh, say Stranger Things, an in-house IP, if they made something like that, that was like, immersive, then you can maybe, or not immersive, but like, you know, GTA level, big time game. But the thing is right now, with they're, they're kind of hamstrung because it's only mobile. So that's kind of a, the things that I'm fighting in my head, but maybe they solve that problem over time. They have a lot of time to get it solved. I don't know if they partner with anyone. I kind of think they would need to acquire a studio, but we'll see. Ryan, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it's, there's a lot to think about because as Brett said, the idea of them trying to build a triple a studio just doesn't make a lot of sense without like, uh, like cloud gaming being commonplace right now. Mm -hmm. So it just, I, I don't see really how that would work. I think mobile is definitely the Avenue they'd have to go down for me. It would be buying, buying a mobile studio of some sorts, whether that's, and the, my initial thought was to, like making a competitive bid for uh, King games away from Microsoft or something like that. Um, but then when I think about how those games are monetized, it's a lot of in-game stuff. So would you want to pay in-game stuff if you're already paying a subscription? Like, does that dilute the experience? I'm just, I, I really don't know how they'd go about it. Maybe it seems like an uphill battle to try to build your own studio, but I don't think they have any intention of trying to 
not not saying you were saying this, but I don't think they have any intention of trying to monetize these directly through any in-app purchases or anything like that. I think this is purely through the lens of of making this offering more compelling, driving further engagement. And obviously there would be some consideration in terms of how they get their IP to be a, a bigger part of this. But I, yeah, I think it's, I think Netflix will continue to be very clear in terms of this being a, a subscription where you pay a set price a month and, and that's what the offering is. But I do think, you know, they've been clear for a very long time that when they think about who their competitors are, you know, they're looking at people like Fortnite and they're thinking about leisure time and they're thinking about entertainment in a very broad way. And I, and again, I, I, I get how on one level that makes sense just from a theoretical, you know, what's the, what's the market opportunity. I am wonder, starting to wonder if we're going to see these things uh, step on each other's toes a little more and see somebody who tries to figure out how uh, to potentially pair these things in a way that would give them incremental scale, incremental ability to, to keep customers in the service. And obviously, ARPUs are part of that question as well. So I think it's very, very early, but I think people are starting to think about that potential idea more and more. Do you I, think... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I think... Uh, a lot of people are skeptical about Netflix being able to succeed in gaming. I think they could mm -hmm. actually do it. Um, it just, they're kind of taking a back door to get there. I think like, well, not, here, here's, you can't I, just build a studio, like, yeah, like AAA studio. Here's what do you think is the better strategy? Cause the two big uh, video media companies in the world, Disney and Netflix are going about it a bit differently. Netflix seems to say we're going to keep everything in house. Basically, we might acquire a small studio or something like that to get the team, but we're going to keep everything in house, keep it within the mm -hmm. app. Everything was in this Netflix subscription, which is kind of their holy grail of nothing we do is beyond the subscription. It's all under this big subscription. But Disney has basically said we don't touch video games anymore. They outsource everything. The easiest one is with Lucasfilm, Star Wars stuff. They just announced a big partnership with EA again, where they're producing three games with them. Do you think Netflix would be better? I mean, what's the better strategy? Licensing out with 100% profit margins to let EA or someone else, the established studio, make your Star Wars games or trying to build this out in-house? I don't know. Any any thoughts on that? Would Netflix ever try to maybe do that if they don't succeed uh, on this current path? The short answer is, I mean, I clearly don't know, but I think as, as your idea of what your business is becomes more of Disney as a service, I think you need more of these capabilities in-house than you probably thought you did in the past. And I, I think, you know, Jason Kyler, who's the CEO of Warner Media, or at least for now is the CEO of Warner Media, he, he likely will not be once the deal closes, if it does close. Um, but he did a podcast recently where he talked about this idea of, obviously metaverse is a very loaded term, but this idea of gaming and what it means to, to your traditional media company, your traditional video companies. And he, he makes a pretty compelling argument that this is, you know, this is the way people are going to interact with your IP. And you don't really think about it as being the same thing as a movie, but these two things are likely on a path where they're going to converge. And if that is where the future is going, I think you really need to ask yourself, how much of that do you want to be in control of? And the answer may be that it's really important that you control all of it. And that's going to lead to a lot of, uh, difficult questions that people need to answer uh, lead to opportunities as well. But it's going to, to your point, it's going to lead to difficult questions in terms of we don't have any of this capability internally. Someone like Disney has gone back and forth on this idea multiple times, if my understanding of it's correct, over the past 20 years. And who knows if they're even happy with what they have now. But I think it's going to be 
a harder question. And, you know, I, I think Netflix starting to ask this question of themselves is maybe indicative of where we may start heading over time. Yeah. The, it is a, it's a harder, it seems like it's going to be a harder task for Netflix, but if they get to the light at the end of the tunnel, they'll have a much more insulated position. Um, sorry, Ryan, do you want to go on to the next one? Or do you I was going to ask about, I guess what you think are going to be the big growth drivers moving forward, but I think it's wanna go, probably wanna go to subs and pricing. So wanna, yeah, well, let's go to valuation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Growth drivers. Everyone knows it's the, this is streaming. It's like it's everyone knows every consumer model. in the world knows uh, valuation. Yeah, I mean, real, quick, or go ahead. real quick on that point though. I think it, uh, there is a fair question of what is, what is the TAM here long-term? And I think one of the numbers people have hung their hat on is, which I think Netflix management was the ones who shared this is this idea of 800 million people who are part of, you know, pay TV globally, ex China is kind of the peak of where that, that got to. And I, I do think it is get kind of, it gets a little muddied because of the difference between an account and a person. So, and as we were just talking about before with, with, concurrent streams and the like. So this, this math is a little bit unclear at times because you don't know how many people are in an account. But I do think as you think long-term about what the world looks like, and you know, let's say it's 7 billion people ex-China, and obviously there's a, there's a very wide range of uh, babies and people in an age where they actually be a consumer of the product and then very old people. But I think one of the things I come away from as I think about the TAM here is it's clearly going to be measured in billions of people and the attractiveness of the offering relative to what existed previously. I mean, something as simple as the ability to consume it on a mobile device, right? Um, it, it, it's, I think that the true TAM here is going to be quite a bit larger than what anybody has in their kind of frame of mind right now. And, you know, Netflix is at 220 million accounts after, you know, they've basically been at this for real for call it a little bit over a decade. Um, Disney got to a place of well over a hundred million subs in a very short period of time. I, I think when we think about what the leading services look, look like in this market, and maybe it won't be Netflix, but I think the leading services in kind of video on demand globally will ultimately have well over 500 million subs. No, that's a great point. I mean, and we, I kind of just think about it as, look, there's going to be a steady stream of everyone our age, is I don't know at least I, everyone yeah. our age is streaming TVs, Roku's, whatever. Everyone older is the cable one. Slowly that'll trickle off over time. But let's move towards more of the stock and the valuation because I know a lot of people from an investing lens are going to want to kind of hone in on that. Um, what kind of margins do you think you can this business can have at maturity? And how do you think about the valuation at its current? I have no idea. You can probably you'll have a better idea. What's its market cap right now? What do you think about the valuation with that? Yeah. So starting with the margins, I mean, I think it's it's important. Again, I, I said it earlier, but to just to reiterate, management came out a few years ago and said, we think we can have something like 300 bips of margin expansion on average for the foreseeable future. And if you look at you know where they were at in 2018, and then you look at where they think they'll be in 2022 adjusted for, for FX headwinds, they're right on target. Um, so they've had very meaningful margin expansion over the past couple of years. And and their tune on where they can get to has not changed. And, you know, as with a lot of things in investing, for me, my faith in this management team and the trust they've earned from me because of what they've said and done in the past, it's it's as high as it's ever been. So I I have a lot of confidence in in what they're selling. And and by the way, you know, you can look at a, an income statement for 
what we viewed as a as a scaled player in this space, kind of a legacy U.S. media company, and the kind of economics that they generated from the pay TV universe and thirty percent plus EBIT margins was was kind of within that range. So you're talking about someone now who is going to have, as opposed to ninety million subs, may ultimately have you know four or five hundred million subs. So I, I think the logic for them getting to to thirty percent plus over time is probably uh, pretty likely. I take the over versus the under. Let's put it that way. Um, in terms of the valuation, you know, it depends how you start to think about obviously what the growth rate looks like in terms of subs and ARPUs, but we're at call it 30 billion trailing revenues right now. If if you think that 30% margin number makes sense, that's, you know, we're at 9 billion already. We'll be north of 10 billion shortly. And I think the market cap is I think 170. So, you know, if you if you view that as a normalized margin number, then you're paying something like 17 times EBIT for normalized EBIT for this business. And as I, as I think about the growth trajectory and, and the competitive advantages that they have, um, I, I think that's a very, very reasonable valuation. All right. That's a great overview. Last question. What's the bear case? I know there are, this, there's a lot of bears out there. Netflix. Um, Netflix. <laughs> that was a uh, thing for a while. Right? That's, oh, it's still a thing to some people. Uh, still a thing. Still a thing. What what's the bear case? Um, what could you see going wrong here? You know, I think the biggest thing would, I mean, there, there's two big ones that probably come to mind. One is what the steady state economics look like um, for this business. And part of that is this discussion we've had about what gap gap profitability looks like relative to, to the cash flows. I think that's mostly a timing issue, but um, that is something that people would point to. You know, the other big one is, as I kind of outlined on the first question, this idea of that huge COVID tailwind that they saw and now what we're experiencing on the back end, you know, the sub guidance is very weak. So if this business, which has, you know, 220 million subs today, roughly, is ultimately capped at 250, 300, whatever it may be, as opposed to the 400, 500, 600 that a lot of people are expecting over a longer period of time, that would clearly impact the top line of the business. and. It might also have reverberations in terms of what it means for competitive dynamics. So um, if that kind of scenario played out, it would probably be a big negative for Netflix relative to current expectations. Um, I don't think that's likely given given the kind of TAM discussion that we just had, but that's that's probably the most compelling bear case. Now they have the debt stuff. Uh, they have a large amount, but they've been out, you know, I think the big payout payback or whatever, when they're due is 2024, 2025. Is that kind of a time period where, say, things start to kind of stagnate? Would that be worrisome at all, or do they have kind of room on their balance sheet? Yeah, I think it's fifteen. Well, they have fifteen billion gross right now. I think um, you know the the cash flow profile in the short term is what it is. That you know on EBIT, you're talking about I guess two and a half times um, for a business where that EBIT number, even if the, even if the margins kind of stay where they are, just as revenue grows, that EBIT number is going to continue to move higher. So, um, I personally don't think it's an issue at all. Um, it's, it's, it's something I don't even focus on at all. I mean, worse comes to worse, I guess they maybe have to issue some equity, but, um, I just, I think people have really, have really got tripped up in terms of where this business is trying to head to and, and what that means for, the income statement versus the cash flow statement over a very short period of time. And they're, and they're somewhat missing, you know, where this company 
seems pretty clearly where they're going to get to. And um, I guess another way to say that is at the equity markets and debt markets don't seem to be as confused on that point. Um, but I guess certain investors just don't see it. But the debt market has been very clear, at least to this point, that they they kind of understand where, where Netflix is going. I mean, management used to call us out. I don't know if they have lately, but how their you know how how their debt kind of traded was just indicative of it being a higher higher credit quality than than I guess how they were rated by the rating agencies. I believe that was the framing that they were coming from. But you know, I, I think that's pretty evident in terms of where this business is going. But um, we'll just have to see. All right. Well, that's all the questions we have. Um, unless you have any more. No. All right. Um, I guess for anyone that wants to find you, best place to do that. Uh, do you know your Twitter handle? I do. It's uh, at TSOH underscore investing. And then you can check out the Substack at thescienceofhitting.com. And just for anybody who doesn't know, um, you know, I, I share research every single week, deep dives on companies, updates on names that I currently own or that I'm following, some investment philosophy discussions, and then the prior disclosure of any and all trades before they're implemented, and um, obviously the disclosure of all positions and their and their weightings. So basically, you know, I used to work on the on the buy side. I've basically taken everything I did in that role and just made it completely accessible to subscribers. So right, Monday and Thursdays, right? If I got it right, every every Monday and every other Thursday, and it's a lot of content. <laughs> yeah, what's the, what the fo- well, the focus is media, right? Well, maybe give a what are your focuses? Because I know it's media and retail. Anything else? Yeah, I focus on media a lot. I focus on retail a lot. Yeah, I've owned I've owned Microsoft for over ten years now, so obviously it's, it's my largest, or I think it's my second largest position now because the stock's done a little bit. Uh, poorly relative to Berkshire. So, but I've owned Microsoft for forever. So obviously I focus on them and and the businesses that they compete in. Uh, Berkshire, I own Ally Financial and Bank of America. So some financials. So, you know, it's a good mix of stuff. Anything I can understand, I try to cover at some point, but that's a little bit narrower than some people. <laughs> right. Oh, and cable too. I love the, uh, cable, forever, yes. the, the wireless talk about the, that was a great, that was a great one. Check that out. If anyone's funny. Talking, it, yeah. Sorry. I was just thinking as you guys, as we were talking about gaming, I, I, I kind of thought of the parallels between cable and wireless and how they're, they're approaching that. And maybe we'll see, I mean, obviously they're very different in a lot of ways, but, but that idea of, of how they view their product and what they're offering is like, it'll be, I'm very interested to see what happens with all this gaming stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you once again to Alex for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.